0: Hello and welcome to 4th Estate for the week beginning Monday, May the 4th. Yes, and may the 4th be with you indeed. From the studios of 2SER and across the community radio network, your weekly discussion on journalism and the media. My name is Rafael Garcia, back again in the host chair. And tonight, how did the media handle the recent executions in Indonesia? And are the gloves now off to speak more freely? Did Fairfax Media sell the family silver when they shipped off their photo archives to be digitized by a company that they're now suing? Well, joining us in the studio this week, we have Tom Allard, National Affairs Editor for the Sydney Morning Herald. Hello, Tom. day, Raphael. Amy Coops, freelancer and former Agence France Press reporter. Hello, Amy. Hello. And also on the phone, we have John Drinan, Media Writer for the New Zealand Herald. Hello, John. How are you? Now, as always, if you have something to say about what we're discussing, you can get in touch via Twitter. Our handle is at estate AU. that's all letters, no numbers. And last Tuesday, Indonesia executed Australians Andrew Chan and Myron Sikomaran, along with six others for drug trafficking. Numerous accounts of them being reformed, multiple rounds of appeal, and even the UN begging for mercy was not enough to stop the two Australians from being shot dead. We all know it's too late to make a difference in this case, but let's spend some time looking at the role Australia med- Australian media played. Last year here on Fourth Estate, the brother of one of the Balibo Five, those Australian journalists killed by Indonesian forces back in Timor in 1975, told us that Australian journalists had not been hard enough on Indonesian authorities. But at the same time, there can be criticism for being just too harsh. You may well remember the amount of criticism the Australian government suffered after Bob Hawke labelled Malaysia as barbaric for hanging two young Australian heroin traffickers in 1986. So first of all, Amy, how did Australian media do this time around?
1: I think, um, you know, I actually think that they did pretty well. I mean, I think it's a very, it's one of those stories that is, is such an intense eye of the storm type of yarns and, and everybody was interested in it. And I think we're in this strange moment where social media has created this town square, an atmosphere that, you know, I, I remember when Van Nguyen was killed, you know, about 10 years or less than 10 years ago, but quite some years ago now. And that was a very different, I think, the way it was sort of talked about in the media was very different. And I also think, yeah, the public... Experience of, of that story was very different. So, yeah, I think sort of lots of people experienced, this, for, for me here, experienced the story via Twitter and Facebook and it felt like people were holding a vigil or something, you know, like there was so many people and there was that whole light, the candle, people sitting in their lounge rooms. And I felt like there were so many people on Twitter that night who couldn't bring themselves to go to bed, you know, and Tom was on the other side of <laughs> the the sea over there actually experiencing it. So,
0: Tom, you were over there just recently. That's right. Uh, how, how do you think Australian media held up this time?
2: Look, uh, I think uh, you know, we did a pretty good job, actually. I mean, it was a very uh, difficult environment to report in. I mean, emotionally intense. Um, you know, the, the 24-hour news cycle really hit us. You know, we were filing for, d- for digital... Stories every couple of hours. Such was the demand, and the story was also moving along. There was a lot of news going around in those last few days, uh, not just with uh, Andrew Chandamire and Sukumaran, but with Mary Jane Veloso. To you know, it's a Indonesia is a hot uh, place. People weren't getting much sleep, so I think all in all, people did a pretty pretty good job.
0: Did Did you feel that the Australian media um, had? Uh uh, th- made a deliberate attempt this time around to, to, to put just the right amount of pressure? <clears throat> well, look,
2: I think it was unusual in that uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, most of the the vast majority of the Australian media was sympathetic to the cause of Andrew Tandemara and Sukumaran. I would argue because it was a clear-cut case of two reformed men. I mean, that reformation cannot be doubted. They've changed, you know, they changed hundreds of lives. So... um you know, there was a real feeling of injustice and I think the media grasped hold of that and I think the public felt the same way and responded to it so there was a little bit of partisanship I suppose in the way the media approached it you could argue, certainly the Indonesian authorities would but um, I think that was natural and this was a very special case But in that, and also I think it's also fair to say the other voices did get heard uh, from the Indonesian side and those in Australia who, who did thought they deserved to die for whatever reason. But uh, largely, yeah, the the media was very sympathetic. And you mentioned the Van Ewen case, uh, very different uh, experiences. And and that was in large part because the media didn't get told the proper story of Van Nguyen until right at the end, literally a few days. I mean, this was a remarkable young man who was writing the most extraordinary letters out of prison. I mean, they are profound. They are beautiful, beautiful things. They were only released... The day before day or two before he died or even afterwards the fact that he was bringing the drugs over for his uh, his brother his twin brother who was a heroin addict you know and wasn't a wasn't a drug dealer or user himself you know these only came out in the last two days so a lot of more of the information about Andrew Chandamara and Sukumaran came out came out early so that gave the the time for the media to understand the story and, and tell it to Australia.
0: Amy but- when, when the pair were sentenced back in uh, 2006, um, a Sydney newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, printed the words, no sympathy, next to their photo. Um, there was a clear shift here in, in, in the mood, wasn't there, in, in um, the original reporting and the reporting that we've seen recently. Why is that?
1: I think, yeah, it comes back to what I was saying before about there being more of a public square around these issues now. With, with social media, I feel like people feel as though they have more of a stake in it and it's this funny I guess tension between is the media reflecting um, the public mood or is the public mood you know fed by the media it's one of those eternal questions that is very difficult to answer but I think that certainly the tabloid press <laughs> have moderated their coverage and, and views on this sort of issue and I'd like to think it, it is a reflection of Changes in the the public mood around this, which I do think to a degree the public were galvanised by those letters from Van Nguyen and the experiences of him being killed. And, and I guess the thing that was so gripping about this, as you were saying, right up until the end, things were changing. Mary Jane Veloso was taken from prison, you know, at literally the 11th hour. And I think everyone back here in Australia still were holding on to this idea that maybe, maybe there was a chance, you know, maybe some, something could change. And, and that's a strange element to this story as well. I think
2: it is. I mean, and I think another reason for that transformation from the, uh, is in, in the, the men themselves, actually, I mean, when they were first arrested, they were, um, they were insolent, they were rude, they were in denial, they were very hostile to the media. They were asked to testify in the cases of some of the other Bali Nine and they just lied, you know. Um, they didn't engage with the media. And they, the two of them personally went through a transformation. It took, took a bit of time, you know, and I think uh, you know, once that transformation began and people realised it and it got, you know, relayed and communicated to the Australian people, that changed, uh, that, that had a big effect. And change the story, so there was whilst you know I'm personally opposed to the death penalty in any case, I mean that these these guys did themselves no favors um, and they would they, they readily admitted that, and they were poorly advised by uh, uh, their previous group of lawyers who told them deny, 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 you didn't have the drugs on you. you. you'll get out of it, don't worry." and so they they took on that strategy as well and and that uh, backfired terribly fatally for them, but it also had the impact of um, uh, you know, making them unsympathetic characters to the Australian people.
0: John, I'd like to bring you in on this one. You, obviously, you're, you're joining us on the phone from New Zealand. Um, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective watching from, from outside. How how did you feel that the Australian media um, do this time around?
3: Um, I think so. there's a lot of interest here, obviously sort of a lot of hits as well, going on digital um, uh, viewing. Um, I think there's a lot of interest in New Zealand, in particular. Um, with a lot, of, there's a lot of perceptions of, uh, about um, how, where, how Australia is sort of relating to uh, to um, uh, Indonesia, in particular. And of course, we have a diff- very different relationship than you do. So I guess uh, uh, after the Corby situation as well, sort of it, it, the perception down here was. It all got a bit mad, basically, and, and and I think quite a few people were surprised. That well, not surprised, but pleasantly pleased, or pleased that um, there was a sort of sense of sort of of of, uh, of, of really trying, working through lots of lots of issues in the media, rather than uh, just sort of jumping from one sort of uh, mad sort of uh, um, idea to the next.
0: Right, so you, you felt there was more of a continuity this time around, uh, rather than yeah, trying to focus well, on lots uh, of things? Yeah, um,
3: well, again, again after, the, after the Circus of Corby, I guess we sort of, um, we just wondered which way it was going to go
0: this time, yeah. Hmm, okay. Um, Amy, do you think that um, it, it's now time to remove our gloves and, and speak more freely about, uh, about Indonesia and how um, this all played out? Do you, do you mean the press <laughs> or the politicians? Yeah, so uh, was the press being overly cautious and, and polite?
1: Well, I mean, I think that there's certainly been that conversation had in the past few days that, um, you know, it's emerged that journalists, certainly in Indonesia anyway, Australian journalists were sort of backgrounded by default on how they should approach the story and things they should and shouldn't say c- in so as not to compromise the diplomatic efforts that were happening behind the scenes. Um In term, I mean, there's still a diplomatic situation happening. That's the fact of the matter. I mean, you know, Grigson's been called back to Australia and things are on rocky ground, it seems, between Australia and Indonesia for now. So now's not the time, I don't think, for the Australian press to uh, be taking the gloves off, so to speak. But, yeah, I'd be interested to know what Tom thinks about that.
2: Yeah. um, Well, look, it's an unusual story because the stakes are so high, you know, and and I think as a journalist if if you if you're being told your story is going to put their lives in jeopardy or they're already in jeopardy but reinforce their the likelihood they're going to be killed you're going to you're going to think about it twice i think that's fair to say and, and i think we all did i mean the only time that you know i withheld any information from one of my stories was when i did a story i think in around mid march just reporting on the internal cabinet uh, divisions over it, um, and I didn't name the uh, the people who were opposing Jokowi on this because if it came if it had come out, then they would have been, you know, pilloried possibly in the Indonesian press, and it would have killed it, right? The killed killed that that internal momentum. So I was convinced not to reveal their names. and the names, or at least one of them, have since come out, which is Yusuf Kala, the um, the vice president. Was agitating quite strongly for uh, the president to uh, to uh, grant a stay of execution. So that that was one example. But look, is it time to take the gloves off? I don't really understand that because generally the Australian press was pretty vigorous, pretty uh, tough on Indonesia. You know, pathetically weak. Uh, Peter Harch's uh, one famous uh, column now uh, that he wrote in the in you know he really gave it to Jokowi with both barrels and and you know i was writing myself you know two two months ago as were others that, you know this was sort of he was doing this because his domestic political fortunes were failing and and uh, you know he was using this as a sort of populist nationalist tool to regain favor i mean that a lot of people were were saying that and writing that I and mean, and that's that's pretty hard on the indonesian president to say he's killing people for domestic political reasons but that that was part of the equation, I believe. Mm. And and we wrote it.
1: And I don't know if you can take your gloves off more than that Courier Mail front page. That's right. <laughs> With that's the blood right. on the hands. Yeah. I thought that was pretty... Yeah. I thought that was counterproductive. But, you know, that's I mean, the Courier Mail. And as
2: for advocating, you know, for for boycotting barley or anything like that, I mean, I, you know, personally, I didn't think that was a... That's not something I personally support. It wasn't something my paper supported. We were happy to have the debate, but there's... You know, there's ordinary Indonesians who, many of whom are opposed to the death penalty, particularly in Bali, which is a distinct culture, who, mm. who would be punished, you know, and, and I think the best way going forward is engagement. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful country with wonderful people with a huge potential that's, you know, frankly, badly let down by its elites, you know, very badly.
0: You're listening to Fourth Estate with Rafael Garcia, Tom Allard, Amy Coops, and um, John Drinnan, who's joining us from New Zealand on the phone. John, um, you you would have heard of um, Presid- um, Prime Minister Tony Abbott um, reminding Indonesia of the aid money that we've sent them in the past. Um, did that seem out of uh, did, did that seem like it didn't really help the cause to you?
3: Even like a teenage boy something. It it, it, it seems really odd but uh to international relations and in that I mean I think if it's it's clearly if if you're talking to your electorate, I mean it, it probably sounds good to a certain part of Abbott's yeah, electorate, but it just seems sort of slightly bizarre So what what that contributed to the to the um, to the to the um, uh, things changing in, in Bali, I don't know. But I guess sort of we're we're all a bit bemused and interested by Uh, Abbott because he is quite entertaining Um, but um, uh, I guess we're just a little bit um, surprised about the number of times he seems to be putting his foot in the light then
0: Um, Tom, you mentioned, um, uh, I believe yourself or or Amy mentioned, um, you know, uh, President Jokowi wouldn't have liked to see, you know, some of the coverage that was in the press here, you know, and the bloodied hands and and things like that. Um, Was this just um, yet another thing that uh, perhaps could have uh, insulted him? Um, Amy? Well,
1: to be frank, I don't think he seems to care very much about... (laughs) Whether what what the Australian press is saying about him or not, and if anything, it probably galvanises him further into playing to the domestic audience in Indonesia on this issue. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't get the sense that he feels ashamed of it. I mean, he may be troubled, but that's his own his own private, I guess, matter.
2: And look, it's always perilous to to guess the motivations of other people when you're reporting. You know, so. We don't know if Jaco is responding well or otherwise to what we're doing. So you, you really, as a journalist, you just, you just do it with, I guess, the limitation, unless someone can give you a, a persuasive uh, argument, very persuasive argument, in these circumstances, that you're going to endanger the lives of the two guys.
0: For sure. And Tom, you were you were there last week, yeah. So you would have witnessed the scenes that we saw on television, mm. for example, of the families being dragged through the crowds and trying to just make their their way through how what can we say about the behavior of media in in these circumstances that the family are grieving and just trying to get to the to the port and trying to get as close as they can to their loved ones yeah. and media is i guess in a way getting in the way sure well look
2: the indonesian media is um is free are free and kind of feral, you know, as well. You know, there's the, the, the media scrums over there are something to behold, although, you know, outside of Downing Street Court with a big case, it's probably not far away, to be honest, over here. But, um, but look, the families have been travelling back and forth to, to Bali for 10 years. They've been of media interest, you know, for um, most of that time and they, they're actually reasonably used to that, that sort of... Uh, you know, kerfuffle that we saw that looked so distressing on TV. Look, I know that they knew that they would have to do the walk and my understanding is they were, whilst it was incredibly upsetting for them, they were happy to do it. And w- maybe happy is not the the right word, prepared to do it. Mm. Because they wanted the world to see their grief. You know, they wanted to it to be known... You know, this is what the death penalty does to families, and so they were prepared bravely, I guess, to to make that walk. And I, I don't think it's something they regret. And just remember, they've, they've been through plenty of those scrums before.
0: Amy, does does the do the commercial imperatives here of you know reporting on on something that is very current and and definitely newsworthy for us, you know, certainly from the Australian perspective, does that conflict with? human feelings and you know what the family was feeling at the time and
1: it's it's the perennial struggle as a journalist when you're sent into these kind of situations and you see the naked grief of people who are in that sort of a predicament or if you go to natural disasters you know i've had people spit on me and call me a parasite (laughs) you know these these are like the most raw human experiences that that you can be thrust into that's one of the amazing privileges of working as a journalist. I think sometimes commercial imperatives can go too far, and I've certainly seen that in my time. You know, like being at the Victorian bushfires and having a commercial television network land their helicopter in Marysville, which was then a forensic crime scene. You know, because they wanted to be the first ones to have the footage. But uh, I think, I think you have to remain human as a journalist. You know, and I think that's the the best and most important thing you can do is be thinking about those families. Even if you know you have to be there and you have to be in the scrum, you know, like understand, try to understand what they're going through, and, and don't be the people who are asking provocative questions to try and get them to cry on camera, you know. And if you can make a gesture of compassion to them, do it, you know. I I don't think that's trite. I think it's actually it can be appropriate in those situations.
0: That's probably a good note to um, end that topic. You're listening to Fourth Estate with myself, Rafael Garcia, Tom Allard from S M H, Amy Coops. John Drinan joining us from the New Zealand Herald. In 2013, Fairfax Media copped criticism for sending its photographic archive to a company in the U.S., Rogers Photo Archive, to be digitized. The idea was that the Arkansas-based company would transform Fairfax's estimated close to 10 million photographs and negatives into a future-proof digital format, making it more readily available to not only Fairfax publications but also the wider community. Fast forward to 2015, and here we are with the company having gone into receivership and facing a series of lawsuits. The fate of photos depicting over 100 years of history is now uncertain. It's unclear where they've gone or if they'll be returned. John Drennan, you've been following this closely, and a large number of the photos are from New Zealand papers. Can you tell us how Fairfax Media made this decision and what has now happened?
3: um uh, well it, uh, it, uh, as we understand anyway, it was a decision made in australia, and uh, the Fairfax executives here implemented it um they uh, so in may uh, two thousand and thirteen they uh they sort of pretty much sort of defined the the deal with um, this company in in little uh, Arkansas and sent it over there. Um I guess in, in the end um it, it makes perfectly good sense doesn't it so to 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 digitize this stuff uh, because um it was going to be a very expensive uh, uh task to try and do it um uh in New zealand or impossibly expensive um but if there is any question really i think it's, it's the degree that so there wasn't any checks made on what the background was for this company um and um, how how sure they could be about its um, uh, meeting its obligations?
0: Sorry, can you talk us through just how significant this archive is?
3: Well, in New Zealand, it's uh, basically New Zealand is a is a duopoly of basically sort of two. Uh, to newspaper companies, and this is because there are no cross media ownership rules, actually not that many uh, media companies overall. Um, so it really has account- amounts to sort of half of the um, uh, newspaper photo archives for New Zealand going back to going back to the nineteenth century. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on how much uh, uh, what the uh, the Australian uh, archive comprises, but certainly it sort of it includes a lot of the uh, material from the Sydney Morning Herald, and I'm not 100% sure about uh, the age either. So it it is a it is a huge thing, um, uh, and again it makes some sort of sense to be able to to digitise and bring it back. And the, the idea was that uh, this company would be able to sell off um, a certain portion of the, of the originals um, and digitize the uh, all of the archive and send it back to new zealand and, and it, it made sense but the the unfortunate sort of um, within three months of the archive arriving in um, Little Rock Arkansas there was the FBI rating rating the uh, the uh, the premises for this this company' um, it was facing about ninety five million dollars u s claims in um, uh, in, in, in the courts over there, has been placed into receivership. Um, and so the Fairfax uh, archivos both in New Zealand and Australia, are being held by the receiver at the moment. But there's an amazing sort of uh, um, uh, level of um, uh, uh, denial, it seems, from Fairfax about this. Um, and, and eventually you, you do find out some details. So I, I rang Fairfax today just to find out if there had been any. Um, any changes in, in, in the status of this stuff without getting a reply and I guess that this is what I, I, I wonder about with a lot of uh, media companies and of course we, we do sort of uh, like to the bang, the, bang the table and sort of demand action and so on but uh, Fairfax um, has been very very um, remiss in, in, in not actually fronting up this very well I don't think.
0: Um. Tom Allard obviously working for Sydney Morning Herald fairfax uh, we we do realize you didn't make the decision of sending the photos overseas to be digitized was fairfax too ambitious in trying to get their entire their entire photo library digitized
2: um well look i, I should preface this by saying i'm not an official company spokesman and i'm not necessarily on top of uh, every detail of this but uh, my understanding is is I think that this, the Sydney Morning Herald alone, for example, has 10 million negatives. Um, then you've got all our, our regional publications and The Age, a huge newspaper that's been around for more than 150-odd years and uh, and the Canberra Times and others, that it was just simply impossible to get uh, these archives digitised in Australia. Um, it was not only really expensive, it would take decades. You know, they'd never done, I think, the biggest ever kind of digitisation project here was about 150,000 negatives right so so they went overseas and um and 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 tried to do a deal that was cost effective yeah you know it's no secret that media companies are doing it tough financially so I'm sure that was part of the thinking I don't know anything about the due diligence I am told that uh I am told that the age negatives have already been returned I'm also uh told that they're negotiating over the others to get them digitised with the receivers. So I don't know much more than that. But um, you can see why they did it. I mean, there's, these are an in- incredibly precious resource for the nation. I mean, I'm sure, I doubt there's an archive this, this big of photographs in this country. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's important they're safeguarding and digitising is the right thing to do because... Um, you know, negatives don't have a, uh, a, a, a um, infinite lifespan. You know, they're gonna they're gonna degrade, so it's it's good to get them done while they're while they're in pretty good nick. So, um, you know, we as journalists are so proud of the photographs that Fairfax takes. We're so proud of the history that you can go back and see these amazing photographs. They're they're, they're a great great resource. So I just hope they sort it out basically.
0: Of course, Amy, is it concerning that a large portion of Australia and New Zealand's photojournalism for the past decades is somewhat at risk or is the future is uncertain?
1: Yeah, I think obviously that's a huge concern, but I mean it, it there's also there would also be a concern if you left them on negatives like you say they have a finite shelf life. Imagine if there was a fire and they all went up in smoke, you know, like you do have to put these things way for posterity but I guess it John's point is that it seemed to this seemed to have been brokered behind closed doors and suddenly it was happening and it's all gone pear-shaped and you know perhaps this was foreseeable but yeah it's a very it's a, there's arguments both ways I guess
0: John just briefly on this one um, what would have been a better approach perhaps?
3: Well, I don't know. the The, the interesting thing, um, beyond what is going to, is, or isn't going to happen to this. It may well be that the receivers um, uh, are amenable to to sorting something out, and it everything comes back and, and it's perfect. But one thing that has happened here uh, is that um, with the New Zealand archives anyway, is that some of the um, the originals have actually been sold off on eBay. What they do is they they had a right to sell off some. Photos on eBay, and some which which haven't been identified at this stage, which may well be historical photos we don't know, um, have have been have been sold off, and it just seems to be very like a very loose sort of, uh, arrangement, and. I, I it's the old, the old sort of story. Is you know, if a deal sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. And I'm not one to to, to question sort of the the way that sort of Fairfax went about this. And um, as Tom said, you know, these are pretty rough times, and anything you can get to, anything you can do to to secure the, these um, uh, negatives and 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 um, without costing too much money is great. But I just wonder if if that if raises questions. But how much we can really rely on um, the media to look after what are sort of, treasures of items? Sort of whether we, we whether we can just sort of continue to um, uh, leave it in their hands. What what would happen if um, if these um, photos were framed um, in a uh, in, in a um, in a legal action by um, by, by the Um Those, John, uh, sorry,
0: <laughs> sorry to cut you off there. Those are excellent questions. We'll have to leave our listeners at home. That is it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Don't forget, you can check out all of our podcasts on the Two S E R website. I'm Rafael Garcia. Thank you to our guests, Tom Allard, Amy Coops, and John Drinan. Join us again next week.